Hiatus edition of PFT Live and PFT PM. Back from one week in South Carolina. Undisclosed location is undisclosed no more. We're at Kiowa Island. It is awesome there. We had a great week. Was able to do a lot of content on PFT. Decided to take a break from the video content. And now, by popular demand or otherwise, we're back with more. We got three weeks to go until PFT Live and PFT PM return to Peacock. Until then, every weekday, fresh videos with information, analysis, and whatever else I feel like talking about during the time that I have until they pull the plug on the session. Let's begin with one of the big stories from last week that created a lot of discussion, a lot of controversy, a lot of hot takes on either side of the aisle. Tom Brady, the news came out that he played last season with a torn MCL. Now, one report said partially torn. The other report said fully torn. Mike Ryan, who is the sports medicine analyst for NBC Sports and Sunday Night Football, said basically there's no difference. Because of the MCL, a partial tear gets graded as a full tear, grade three, full tear. For grade one or grade two of the MCL, it heals on its own. Grade three requires surgical intervention. That's what Brady had. The amazing aspect of it is, number one, that he played apparently all season with it. And number two, that the NFL and the Buccaneers and Brady never said anything to anyone that he was playing with the torn MCL. As Ryan explained it to me, there's a moderate risk of a serious knee injury when playing with a torn MCL. They can use tape to stabilize the knee. That's what the MCL helps to do, stabilize the knee. Brady wears that gigantic brace on his left leg, and he's done so pretty much ever since he tore the ACL and MCL in the first game of the 2008 season. But if he had taken a hit, wrong time, wrong place, wrong configuration, knee would have potentially imploded, ACL potentially would have torn again, season would have been over, maybe career over if you get a torn ACL at age 43. So that explains why the Buccaneers didn't wear on their sleeve the fact that Brady was missing an MCL. That is a separate question from whether or not they should have disclosed it. And this is one of the issues the NFL has dealt with for years and will continue to deal with in a significant way as legalized sports wagering continues to spread throughout the country. Because without full transparency when it comes to injuries, that creates inside information. The existence of inside information creates an opportunity for people with gambling interests to try to get the inside information. And that can lead to people who know things saying things to people who want to know those things. And at some point, there could be an exchange of money or other things to get the people to provide the information. And it can be players, it can be coaches, it can be agents, it can be reporters. It can be the person who's just happening to go by the meeting room and emptying the trash and seeing something written on a whiteboard in a facility. There are so many different ways that inside information can be obtained and shared with people who want to know everything they possibly can know before they set the betting lines, before they make their bets. Inside information can make all the difference. And in one case, it may not matter. With with Brady and the Buccaneers, the fact that no one knew he had a torn MCL didn't matter because the knee never went. So you could look at it and say, well, the inside information really, really means nothing because he played, he played well, and they won the Super Bowl. But it's an example of what can happen 
if teams hide injuries and if the league doesn't react aggressively when those injuries are hidden. I was told over the weekend, I've not written this yet at PFT, but I will, that the NFL understands they need to basically go back and reimagine the entire injury reporting function in order to best balance transparency with player health and safety. I mean, uh, let's face it. And, and I've heard players use these terms in the past. I don't think they use them now. Post Bounty Gate, the world has changed from the standpoint of what players and coaches are willing to say about the inherent physicality of football. But I've heard it said when you know a guy has an ankle injury, a knee injury, a shoulder injury, whatever, we're going to test the injured area. So if opposing defenses knew that Tom Brady had a left knee problem and everybody knows he had the torn ACL and MCL in 2008, they're going to test it. And and, and look, there's a fine line between acknowledging that privately, saying it publicly, creating a big problem from a PR standpoint, but that's why the Buccaneers didn't put it out there, plain and simple. They didn't want opposing defense to know there was value in accidentally hitting that left knee or maybe saying, like allegedly the Saints did in the 2009 NFC Championship game, we're just going to tee off on the opposing quarterback. High, low, wherever we hit him, we'll take the flags, we'll take the fines because the end result is the opposing team's best quarterback can't play anymore. So that's why the Buccaneers would hide it. And that's part of the balance the league has to strike. You want to protect players from hits like that that will test injured areas, but you also want to ensure that there is no inside information that then can be corrupted, that the process can be undermined, that the sport's integrity can be called into question. And as I've said time and again, the wrong scandal at the wrong time is going to result in Congress maybe creating an agency that has oversight of the various professional sports or a prosecutor convening a grand jury and trying to get indictments of people who misuse this private information that can be leveraged for money or whatever to help gamblers have a better understanding of what really could happen during a game. So it's a problem. It's an issue. I've asked the league multiple times about the Tom Brady situation. And given the fact that the Buccaneers didn't disclose the injury once during the season, the league's constant response is no comment. And a common sense in my experience with the league office tells me that if the Buccaneers fully complied with the rules, they would just say there's no violation. To say no comment tells me there's a violation, but you know, I think the league understands that, especially in an age of legalized sports wagering, if you start letting the world know that there is cheating on the injury report, that there is some level of corruption within the sport, that's what gets legislators and or prosecutors interested in maybe trying to end those practices. So this is not something that is going to go away. It's something to keep an eye on, whether it's Brady or anyone else. The NFL is going to struggle with this. And with all the money the NFL is going to make off of legalized wagering moving forward, it needs to peel off a few of those bucks and spend the time and the money and the effort necessary to come up with rules and procedures that will be properly enforced that ensure that the integrity of the game can't be undermined. You, you, can, you can undermine the integrity of the game and you can also undermine the integrity of the individuals connected to the game by undermining the betting interests, by having this inside information that is shared. And, and, and look, it, it doesn't take many dots to get to the point where you have someone who is getting paid by gambling interests for inside information to 
having someone who is getting paid by gambling interests to ensure that the home team doesn't win by more than six and a half points. So they want to nip this in the bud. At least they should want to nip this in the bud. And one of the reasons I'm banging this drum is I think it's good for nobody connected to the sport if the integrity of the game or the integrity of the wagering process gets undermined by the misuse of inside information. There's very little inside information when it comes to the future of Aaron Rodgers. I think he knows what he's going to do. And I think he's going to show up next week. And I think one of the reasons he's been coy about it is Mark Murphy, the CEO of the team, meets with shareholders slash cheeseheads slash fans of the team at Lambeau Field next Monday for the annual shareholder meeting. Why would Aaron Rodgers want to give all those fans a reason to exhale in their knowledge that Aaron Rodgers is showing up the very next day for the start of camp? Let Murphy sweat. I mean, ultimately, Murphy's the guy that Rodgers has a problem with. Brian Gutekunst is the name that surfaced early on once Rogers let it be known that he wanted out. But Murphy's the guy who, number one, is the CEO. And number two, as of a few years ago, when Gutekunst became the GM and Mike McCarthy was still the coach, Murphy got more involved in the football operation. There's no way Murphy didn't sign off on the trade up to get Jordan Love. And I think at some level, Murphy tries to manipulate Aaron Rodgers. I think Murphy was happy about Tyler Dunn's story in early 2020. 2019, excuse me, I'm getting my ears a little bit screwy here, but it was 2019, the first year with Matt LaFleur. All the dirty laundry came out about McCarthy and Rodgers, and Murphy's attitude was basically, hey, if this pisses some people off, good. Maybe people will be more motivated to come out and have a big 2019 season, and they did. And then last year, the drafting of Jordan Love pissed off Aaron Rodgers. What happens? He's the MVP. Now the question is, what will they do when he shows up this year? And I still believe that Murphy would rather move on with Jordan Love. Murphy would rather Aaron Rodgers not show up. You know, if he doesn't show up, they, they avoid $14.9 million in salary, assuming he doesn't show up at all this year. They can collect $11.5 million in unearned signing bonus money, and there's another $6.8 million that's available in a roster bonus that he's earned, but they won't have to pay him. And you look at their balance sheets, they lost like $38 million last year. Well, they'll make back $35 million of it or thereabouts if Rodgers just doesn't show up. I think Murphy would prefer he doesn't. If he does, that could be the moment that the door opens for a potential trade because it could be that psychologically the Packers at the top of the organization don't want to have the Aaron Rodgers farewell tour. Usually you see a farewell tour under circumstances where the guy's going to ride off into the sunset with a gold watch and he's not going to play for anybody else. And I know that we saw that a little bit differently with Brady two years ago, but with Tom Brady, no one really knew with certainty he was leaving the Patriots. It started to become a little more obvious as the season progressed, but it wasn't something that, that hovered so conspicuously over the franchise from the first day of camp. If Rogers reports on the first day, that cloud is going to hang over green Bay until the end of the season this idea that he's done after this year. And yeah, hey, look, maybe they can push the buttons and pull the cords in a way that gets Aaron Rodgers sufficiently pissed off that he takes the package to the Super Bowl and wins it. But along the way, man, it's going to be a long year for Mark Murphy. It's going to be a long year for Brian Gutekunst. It's going to be a long year for Matt LaFleur, who's going to be caught in the middle between the lingering animosity. You know, if, if Aaron Rodgers shows up, it's not going to be like, Russell Wilson in Seattle, who has completely slammed the door on the things 
that were bothering him back in February and March. He's been able to move on from it completely, and he's all in. And maybe he'll be all out again after this season, but for now, he's all in. I think when Rodgers shows up, he may try to say he's all in. He's not going to be all in. He's said too much. Too much has been reported. Too much has been discussed. He's not happy with the upper levels of the organization. That's not going to go away. He's going to be asked about it. He's going to talk about it. It's going to constantly be there. And that's why I think that in a weird sort of way, if he wants to be traded, showing up may be the first step toward getting the executive level of the organization to say, we think that it's in the best interest of the team to move on to Jordan Love. Look, Aaron Rodgers didn't show up for any of the offseason program. He skipped the mandatory minicamp. He's, he's thinner than he needs to be. He hasn't worked out with any of his teammates in months. We got a guy who's been working and working and grinding and ready, and we believed in him enough to trade up in round one to get him in April of 2020. Let's go with him. So don't be shocked if he shows up and showing up is the first domino in the path that results in Rodgers being traded to the Broncos at some point by the middle of August. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying that it's something that we need to pay attention to. Rodgers showing up for camp is not by any means the end of the story. It's the beginning of a new chapter, and it's going to be the gift that keeps on giving all year long, at least until he's traded. And if he's traded, then it takes on a new level altogether with the new team becoming a focal point and the Packers becoming even more interesting to see what they can do without Rodgers on the field. There's plenty of news still coming out about vaccination rates and roughly a third of the league now has gotten to the point where at least 85% of the players have gotten at least one, if not both of the shots. I had thought for a while that the vaccination rates will go up as the roster sizes decrease with 90 guys you need a lot more guys to be vaccinated to get to 85 percent as you trim from 90 down to 53 and they've added a couple of steps this year so it's not one fell swoop like it had been but as you go from 90 to 53 i had believed that the that the rate would always go up i'm starting to think it may go down because i'm starting to think that the guys who are getting vaccinated are the guys who know that they need to be able to say I'm vaccinated in order to enhance their chances of making the final 53-man roster. That the guys at the bottom of the roster have figured out, either on their own or with the advice of family members, agents, whoever, or maybe off-the-record conversations with coaches or others in the organization, that if you want to make the team and you're one of these guys that is fighting for the final 5, 10, 15 spots on the 53-man roster, you've got to be vaccinated to have a chance. So it could be that the increases in the vaccine rate are flowing from the guys at the bottom of the roster all getting vaccinated to enhance their chances of making the team, which means as those guys are cut and as they weed out the back end of the roster, who's left? The star players with the big salaries who are important to the team's effort to win games, who have decided, I'm untouchable. I don't need to get vaccinated. That's where it's going to get interesting. Will that rate go up or will that rate go down? I'm starting to think there's a chance that the rate will actually go down as teams trim from 90 to 53. And, and it will put some key veteran players who have high salaries, who have said, I'm not getting vaccinated, at risk of being dumped for a younger guy 
that the team is impressed with based upon training camp and preseason. And they say, hey, we're going to save six million bucks, for example, and our vaccination rate is going to be a little bit higher because we're moving on from a veteran who says, no way, no how, I'm not getting vaccinated, to a guy who, who says, yes, I got vaccinated. And oh, by the way, I'm going to cost you a lot less in cash and cap space. And that's still important. $25 million net decrease in the cap from last year to this year. Even though teams are all currently under the cap, they want to create cap space where they can. That's another reason for guys who haven't been vaccinated, who think they're untouchable to think twice about it and maybe just go ahead and get the vaccine. And, and let, me, let, me, let me address the broader issue with getting the vaccine. It, it is more from being you know, just this idea that, hey, it's smart for you to do it. And if you haven't gotten it, you should get it into an emerging public health crisis where the infection rates are going up in every state, hospitalization rates are going up, death rate is going up, COVID is making a comeback. And my concern is, as we see the return of mask mandates in places like Los Angeles County, people have moved on from the pandemic. And I think it's going to be so much harder to get people to go back to the way that we lived from March of 2020 until May of 2021, that genie's out of the bottle and that genie's not going back in for a lot of people. And, and I can remember the trips I would make to the grocery store here and I would see masks on everyone. I think that if a mask mandate comes back to West Virginia or anywhere else, you're gonna have a lot of people who say either I've been vaccinated and I'm not putting a mask back on or I haven't been vaccinated and I never wanted to wear a mask in the first place. And this thing's over as far as I'm concerned. And I'm just going to live my life, yada, yada, yada. And, and I don't know how at this point the people who believe in the vaccination can convince the people who don't believe in it to change their mind. I don't think there's anything that anyone can say or do at this point to change their mind. And if you watch cable news, the, the left-leaning cable news channels, I don't think the strategy of getting mad and yelling at unvaccinated people who aren't watching you anyway is the way to get them to get vaccinated. I've seen a lot of that. A lot of people getting pissed off and getting upset and yelling to an audience that isn't there because they're yelling to the vaccinated that the unvaccinated should get vaccinated. I don't know what that does to get the unvaccinated to, to get the shots. It, it's, it's not going to be effective. Somebody needs to come up with a way to scare the crap out of the unvaccinated, to pierce through that shell that has them refusing to get vaccinated. And, and I, don't, I don't have the answer, but I'd like to think that the upper levels of the American government all the way to the president can and should come up with some sort of an idea here. Sorry about that. Phone call coming through. Sorry. Um, but uh, somebody needs to come up with a way to get the unvaccinated to, to do it. You know, they've been talking about going door to door. And there's a concern that the people who are not vaccinated will view that as, you know, big brother in 1984. And, you know, you may have a shotgun blast coming through the door if somebody shows up. And I'm not kidding when I say that to try to get somebody persuaded to take the vaccine. So it's, it's, we assume that everything's fine and dandy. And we assume that the football season is going to go forward. And I think it will now, whether and to what extent we have full stadiums, we'll see. But I feel like in so many ways, it's too late to turn back around. But the things that I'm seeing and hearing, when I do pay attention to the news, and, I, and you know, I, I kind of checked out last week while I was at the beach, it's sobering. And it feels like we're heading back to a bad spot again. And I don't know what that's going to mean for football season, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on as August 1 approaches.
One last thing about the vaccine situation, which I think will persuade more players to get the vaccine. And before they do, they're going to be pissed off when they see and understand what this means. There was a memo recently from the league to all teams explaining that in the facilities, vaccinated players are required to be readily identifiable through a wristband, a a credential on a lanyard, whatever the case may be. I'm told that the league and the union are finalizing plans to allow someone who has been vaccinated to be readily identified on the practice field and on the sidelines or during games, which means all those players out there who don't want to talk about the vaccine, it's a personal medical decision. It's nobody's business but mine. Well, it's going to be obvious who is and who isn't vaccinated. And that in and of itself, once the players understand that, and the sooner they make sure the players know that and let them process it, let the ones who don't like it, like Cole Beasley, go to social media and rant and rave about it and then realize, hey, look, if I, if I can get away without being vaccinated and no one knows, I'll do it. But if everyone's going to know I'm not vaccinated, I'm just going to go ahead and get vaccinated. I mean, it may make the difference for some guys. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the question of whether Tom Brady gets vaccinated. I don't think he will. He didn't want any chemicals anywhere near his body. He's not going to want to have any kind of chemical injected in his body. He thinks his body's a perfect temple that will be able to withstand any and all illness. He's not going to get it, I think. Well, if he didn't get it, we're going to know based upon what the union and the league are currently discussing. So keep an eye on that. And, and I think the sooner the league and the union make that information available to players, the sooner that some of them who have been reluctant to get the vaccine can get it before they report for training camp. Uh, one last point. As it relates to the Richard Sherman situation, that broke last week when I was at the beach, and we had plenty of stories about it at PFT. And uh, it, it, it sounds like things are under control for now, and that's good. For him and his family, we wish them the best, and we hope that this situation can be managed in a successful way and that whatever occurred last week won't happen again. From a football standpoint, I don't know enough about what's going on with Richard Sherman to know whether it's good for him or not good for him to be on a team. It could be that it's in his best interest to sign with someone to get to a training camp and to benefit from the structure of being in a locker room with his teammates, back in an environment where he's comfortable, where he's familiar, whether it's back with the 49ers, back with the Seahawks, or with a new team. That could help him immensely at this point. And and my broader point is, given the fact that he's facing five misdemeanors, the nature of the accusations, the facts that resulted in these five charges, the league could decide to put him on paid leave. And my point is, as it relates to Sherman, as it relates to Deshaun Watson, as it related two years ago to Antonio Brown, the league should not use the potential of paid leave as some sort of a guessing game. And, oh, hey, you know, well, hey if, if the Saints are interested in signing Richard Sherman and they contact the league office, will you tell us whether or not he's going to be put on paid leave? No, we're not going to tell you. Well, why wouldn't you tell the Saints or anyone else whether or not that's going to happen? Because in a situation like that, it operates as a deterrence, just like it did with Antonio Brown. He served a 14-game unpaid suspension as a practical matter because the league wouldn't tell any of the teams that were interested in Antonio Brown whether or not he was going to be put on paid leave for the accusations he was facing at the time. And that's just wrong. Just let everyone know where the guy stands. He'll be put on paid leave or he won't be put on paid leave. And for Richard Sherman, if the league refuses to say so, that becomes a potential impediment to him joining a team. So that's why I believe as to Sherman, as to Watson, as to Brown, as to any other player who possibly could end up on paid leave, 
the league needs to conduct a preliminary investigation under the personal conduct policy, come to a decision, and even if a guy currently isn't signed by any team, let everyone know what his status is going to be so everyone can make the right decisions. All right, I've gone on longer than I thought I was going to. Shocker. Uh, I want to answer some of these questions, though, because we've got a few in here. This is sight unseen as usual. And uh, we'll see if there's anything here that is non-sarcastic. Um, Brandon Elkins, Aaron Rodgers knew he wouldn't be traded this offseason, coming off an incredible season of being the MVP. I think he's created all this drama to set the stage to be traded next offseason, knowing that's more realistic. Thoughts? Hey, I don't disagree with that concept. And Peter King made the suggestion weeks ago of a very simple solution. Packers say to Aaron Rodgers, come back this year and play this year. And after the season, we'll trade you. And I think the Packers get more trading him after the season than they would get trading him now. But I think at some level, Mark Murphy doesn't want him there. And if he shows up, there's a chance the Packers soften in their we're not trading you mindset because I think they would just prefer at this point not to go through the full season of drama driven by Aaron Rodgers. Philip Krajewski, will Chris Sims remember to show up for work or continue to wake and bake? Uh, we got three more weeks until Sims has to come back. It's just me for the hiatus edition, but I, I fully expect that Sims will be back and ready to go and back into retox, full detox for three more weeks, retox as of August 9. Sean Alvishar, this is an important question. What are your thoughts on James Gandolfini almost replacing Steve Carell on The Office? I first became aware of that reading the book that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, The Oral History of the Office. And I had no idea how close it was between James Gandolfini and James Spader to be the new boss post Michael Scott slash Steve Carell. And the extra bit of news that came out last week, and I saw this tweeted by Jimmy Traina of SI.com, NBC offered Gandolfini $4 million to do it. HBO paid him $3 million to not do it. So that would explain why I didn't do it. I think it would have been awesome. I think it would have been spectacular. And I think those last few seasons of the show would have been remembered a lot more fondly than they are. Really, from the moment Michael Scott, I, let me step back. After Pam and Jim got married, it kind of started to creep downhill. After they had the baby, it started to accelerate. After Michael Scott left, that's when it fell off the cliff. And I don't really remember much about the last two seasons. I watched them. I remember not liking it. And I remember feeling compelled to keep watching because of the fact that I'd been invested for so long. And, and I think it wouldn't have been that vibe if it had been James Gandolfini instead of James Spader at the, at the end of the series. Oh, let's see. Matt and St. Pete, what would have to happen for the NFL to take action against the Bucks for the Brady MCL situation? For all we know, they're going to. For all we know, they're going to do it secretly. You know, a couple of years ago, the Steelers and Coach Mike Tomlin got penalized by the league, fined by the league for not disclosing Ben Roethlisberger's elbow injury. And that elbow went out during week two of the 2019 season. And, and there were fines that were imposed. The NFL does not like to aggressively enforce that rule because, as I said earlier, the league doesn't want people to realize how widespread the violations are of the injury reporting rules. And they are widespread. Brandon Feely, 97, UK fan. Would you ever consider coming to London and doing a special PFT podcast when the annual London games are on? I mean, the problem is the London games happen during the regular season and we're here for football night in America and the time change and the travel, it just doesn't work. We want to come to London 
we were getting ready to come to London before the pandemic. Once the pandemic is finally over, whenever that may be, we're, we're coming to London. I guarantee you that. James McDonough, otherwise known as at Dr. J144, do you see this season going well for Cliff Kingsbury and Steve Kime? I live here in Arizona and think they're clearly the fourth, fourth best team in the division. I'm not as optim- optimistic as some are nationally. I, I remember when the Cardinals used to be in the NFC East prior to 2002. That was their division. They'd be the best team in the NFC East right now. You take the Cardinals and put them in with the Cowboys, Giants, Eagles, and Washington, Cardinals are the best team. NFC West, I would say, yeah, they are the fourth best team because the Rams, the 49ers, and the Seahawks are so good. And with seven playoff teams per conference, there is a chance every team in the NFC West could get a playoff berth. Now, that would mean no team other than the division champions for the other three getting in. But it could happen. Stranger things have happened. Uh, maybe not that strange as having all four teams from a division in the playoffs, but it could happen. I think if the Cardinals don't make it to the playoffs this year, though, the Cardinals are going to move on from Cliff Kingsbury. The Cardinals have a long history of not sticking with coaches uh, for an extended period of time. Only two coaches in the history of the organization have ever made it six years. Jim Hannafin from 80 to 85 and Ken Wisenhunt, who took the team to the Super Bowl. Bruce Arians made it five years. This is year three for Kingsbury. I don't think he gets a fourth one if they don't make it to the playoffs this year. You're already picking up on that vibe, that frustration, that irritation from guys like Kyler Murray. And I think this is it for Kingsbury. Kime may survive, but I don't think Kingsbury does if they don't make it to the playoffs this year. And it is going to be a difficult thing to have happen. PFTP and Posse, as we continue to see the number of competent franchise quarterbacks increase, when... Or will we start to see them devalued like franchise running backs? You know, I I don't think we're going to see quarterbacks get to the point where the supply greatly outweighs the demand. That's what we see with running backs. And and I think we're, we're going to start to see that with receivers because there are so many great receivers that come out in the draft every year. Teams are going to be reluctant to pay huge money to their star receiver, knowing that they can just go find another one because so many guys every year are making an impact right away in the NFL. With quarterbacks, I think what we're going to see is a greater willingness to not give market value money to a guy on a second contract. And it may be one of the reasons why Baker Mayfield, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen don't have their second deals yet. You don't have that same compulsion to lock up with the second contract, a quarterback who's landed on the pass side of pass fail as to whether or not he's a bust. I think teams now have the luxury to wait and see whether that player is going to be a true shortlist franchise quarterback, because if he's not, maybe you don't want to break the bank for him. Maybe you want to think about your options. And it's one of the reasons why so many veteran quarterbacks are available every year. Teams want to find a franchise quarterback. They're willing to move on from a guy who is good enough, but not great enough in the hopes of finding a guy who will be the answer for 10 or 15 years or longer. And with so many College quarterbacks coming out now who are competent and ready to go. Coaches willing to embrace the systems that those quarterbacks thrived in at the college level. That's what's making teams less inclined to overpay a guy who is just average middle of the pack. Everyone wants that franchise guy who is among the very best in the league. And teams are willing to let the bird in the hand fly away in search of the two in the bush, because if all else fails, they'll find another bird in the hand out there somewhere. All right. Let's, uh, 
let's see what else we got here. Probably should wrap this up. I'm looking for a good one. Looking for a good one. Uh, let's see here. Some, some of these are funny. I'm not going to read them out loud. I like the fact that people have a sense of humor. Can anyone improve their accuracy like Josh Allen did from year one to year three ever again? That's JP Skubinski. I, I don't know that. Look, I don't know how much of it was Josh Allen suddenly becoming a better quarterback as it was the Bills surrounding him with the talent that allowed him to become a better quarterback. You go out and get Stephon Diggs, you get a high-end receiver, all of a sudden your quarterback looks a lot better. You know, one of the knocks on Josh Allen coming out of college was his accuracy was not good. Well, his receivers were not good. At some level, the guy who is commissioned to run the route and catch the pass has to do his job or the quarterback's going to be the one who bears the brunt of the incomplete passes. So yes, Josh Allen, year three, hit a level that people had assumed based on year one and two, he wasn't going to reach. And, and that shows the flaw, I think, of coming to hard and fast conclusions about a guy's ability based upon one or two years in the NFL. Now, now I know that teams are less patient than they've ever been with quarterbacks and really players at any position. You use that first round pick on a guy, you want him to come in and make an impact right away. But yeah, for some guys, it takes a little bit to get to their ceiling. It takes some help to get to the third uh, year and have that great season like Allen did. So yeah, I, I could see other quarterbacks coming in and not having the help around them the first couple of years. And by year three, they have the help around them and off they go. That's what they expect Daniel Jones to do this year for the Giants. They expect him to have no excuses with the first round pick used on Kadarius Toney, the money that was spent to bring in Kenny Galladay, uh, Saquon Barkley back if and when he's back. He recently said he's not sure when he's going to be ready to go, but they, they want Daniel Jones to have that same kind of jump this year. And if he doesn't, gets back to the prior question from PFTPM Posse. I think the Giants will be inclined at that point to say, hey, Daniel, we're not giving you a second contract. We'll go find somebody else. Maybe we'll keep you for four years. Maybe we'll keep you for five years. But after that, we're going to move on. And we're not going to make the mistake of paying you 30 or $35 million just because we fear not having someone else who's as good. We'll find someone else who's as good because there's so many veterans out there. This is the new normal. Every free agency now, I believe, there will be more than a handful of quarterbacks with recognizable names who are available to be signed or guys out there who could be traded for because teams recognize the younger quarterbacks coming into the league better than ever before. All right, that's it for today. We'll do it again tomorrow. We'll do it every day this week. We're getting ready for the Olympics, which launched this weekend, but we're still going to carve out some time for the PFT Live, PFT PM daily hiatus version of everything happening in the NFL. Thanks, as always, for some of your time, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.